Well, welcome to our next installment of the Apocalypse series. This is our study of the book of Revelation. So the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And we will be, a couple of announcements by the way, just sort of housekeeping. While I'm remembering it is we will have class next week, but the following week, which is February 22nd, is Ash Wednesday. So our church is gonna do an Ash Wednesday service at 6.30 on Wednesday evening, and we, don't, we won't have classes, we'll just have the Ash Wednesday service. So we will miss one week uh, of all classes, but this class won't meet on the 22nd. So Ash Wednesday on the 22nd, we will be in here next week, and this series will go through May 10th. So obviously we'll be off again on the week of Easter, that one. So we'll have a couple times where we, we just don't meet at our church for this, but we'll go all the way through May 10 and we can slow down a little bit that way and take more questions because it'll be a couple weeks longer than we usually do. So just a reminder, two weeks from tonight, feel free to come to the Ash Wednesday service. I think it'll be a great, uh, great service. Okay, hey, uh, here's the number for questions. So. Text in your questions during class. We answer as many as we can. And then for the questions that we can't get to or that require, uh, just would love to go into more depth and more context with them, we record with uh, my son who uh, runs So We Speak Media. We record and post on Friday mornings a podcast that answers many more questions and goes in a little more depth. So if you have a podcast, app on your phone, if you just put in So We Speak, or if you go to SoWeSpeak.com, you'll find the podcast, and it's just questions and answers uh, on the lesson for this week. So let me say a prayer for us, and we will dive right in because apocalyptic things are about to happen. Lord, thank you so much for the country in which we live. I pray for the leaders of our country. Father, I pray that despite uh, the good things or bad things that happen, despite the intentions of our leaders, some are very good, some are unfortunately are not. And I pray, Father, though, that through all these things that your hand would guide this nation. I pray that your name would be lifted up. And Lord, I pray that you would turn the hearts of our leaders to the flourishing of the people and that this nation might be one of many lights in this world to glorify your name. I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice Lord, that you would be with them to comfort them. I pray for relief from anxiety and for healing, for us to, to know your presence and to know the presence of your spirit within us. Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace, and I thank you for the revelation that you have given to us, things that we could not have known lest you had told us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we, uh, this is a bit of a recap this is the tail end of uh, the worship scene in chapter five. So in our last lesson, we did chapters four and five of the book of Revelation. And chapter four begins what's called the tribulation. Chapters one through three, letters to the seven churches. This is Jesus speaking to churches in the first century. Then chapters four through 19, is a period of time where God's judgments are meted out on the world. And that the name of that time period is called the tribulation. Chapters four and five begin the vision. And John says, I saw a door in heaven and he gets a vision into what is a throne room in heaven? And in our last lesson, we talked about the throne that he saw and the brilliance of God's majesty. He saw the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and he saw a scroll in the hand of uh, God, and he saw the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb, who was able to open the scroll. And the ending of this is a worship service. And so I'll just read this again, because this is so powerful to see this vision. This vision sets up everything that's gonna happen. And when the lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, before Christ, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Saints are Christ followers. 
the prayers of Christ followers, and they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests for our God. Then I looked and around the throne, the living creatures and the angels uh, were numbering hundreds of millions, were singing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down in worship. So you see this beautiful scene in heaven. This is just a painting from the 1400s capturing this idea. But this is actually, this vision is the center of the book because everything else that happens, the authority for all the judgments Everything else that's gonna happen in this book comes from this throne room. And if you remember our last lesson, one thing I want you to remember is it comes from this throne room, not Caesar's throne room, or Beijing, or Washington DC, or any other earthly government. The disposition of this universe is controlled by the one who has authority over this universe, and that is all coming from the throne of God. By the way, this is a little off the subject, but you remember Jesus' brilliant saying when he was in, uh, when he was on earth and he's teaching and they bring him a denarius and they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, some of the Jewish people were trying to catch him and get him trapped in an idea. And he says, well, show me the coin. You guys remember this story? He says, they do, they show him the coin. They say, whose picture's on the coin? Well, Caesar's picture's on the coin. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And so putting it in this perspective, you're about to see in the book of Revelation that everything in this universe, everybody in this universe belongs to God and that all the rulers of the world have had power over a little period of time and a little piece of this earth. And so as powerful, and this is the faith lesson, as powerful as the forces of evil appear in this world, and believe me, for the early Christians, they appeared very powerful because the Roman government was persecuting and killing Christians. As powerful as they seem, this is where the real power is. And that was so encouraging to Christians like what we see in the Roman Empire, what we see in the Korean government, if you're a Christian there being persecuted today, that's a power for a little bit of time, but eternity belongs to God. And so it's a powerful idea. So reminder, as we get into this period of tribulation of the four views of Revelation, and I'm gonna try and represent all four of these views. They're all orthodox views, these are all Christian views. They may not all be right, but they're all orthodox. And by orthodox, I mean that they're at least faithful to the scriptures and they all believe the scriptures are true. First view is, and the key to these views is, when are all these events we're gonna talk about in this lesson starting to happen? Well, the preterist view says, actually, this book is all about uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and most of this stuff has already happened in the past. Historicists say, actually, all these symbolic things and cataclysms you're gonna see are kind of a secret coded roadmap between the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. In this lesson, and especially in the next lesson, I'll tell you what historicists think is happening and tie it to the historical events they think it's talking about. Futurists say no, most of the things here have not happened yet and they will happen in the future and in fact chapter four through 19 represent things happening in a seven year period in the future. That's probably the most popular view right now is the idea of these things are predicting what's gonna happen in a seven year period of tribulation. Then the symbolic view says everything that says here is true but actually, these things are recurring themes that have happened over and over. So I know I repeat this a lot, but I just want you to see the different perspectives. And as we go through it, I'm gonna tell you how each perspective might see some of these things that are happening. Question. Yes, can you tell us 
when in history these ideas have been most prominent? So like in the first century, were they historicists or were they symbolic? And in the 1500s, what did people think? Or Great question. When have these views, uh, and again, these are, there, there's a lot of little nuances here, but these are the four main ideas. The preterist view, uh, more recent times, is when people have looked back and said, you know what, as I think about this book, it really fits 70 AD very well. So a little more recent times, it's, not, it's never been wildly popular view. Uh, so I mean, in terms of just the number of scholars and people that uh, approach it. The historicist view became particularly prominent at the Protestant Reformation. So thinking 1500s, right around there. The idea that, you know what, this book actually, they were able to look back at 1500 years of church history and kind of go, you know what, There's, this sure looks like maybe it relates to a lot of these events. The futurist view has always, has always had a following, even in the early church. Uh, the early church even had that premillennial futurist view, as uh, some people did. Symbolic has always also always been a, a view that's been around. So good question. But the historicist view, particularly in the Middle Ages, this, this is interesting. Okay, this is a rabbit trail. All right, so you get Luther and uh, Calvin and all those guys re you know, revolting against, protesting against the Catholic Church. And they come up with a historicist view. And guess who they think the Antichrist is? Pope, okay? So Catholic theologians go, whoa, this, we do not like where this is going, all right? So they revive the futurist view and say, actually, none of this has happened yet. You know, get off the Pope's back, you know, and we're gonna be futurists. So it's interesting kind of watching the ebb and flow of these ideas over time. So those are the, the four different views. Now I wanna talk about, as we get ready to open, what's gonna happen now is you're gonna open seven seals and God's judgment is gonna begin on humanity and on the earth. Then you're going to see seven trumpets being blown. That'll be our next lesson. And you will see more judgments of God happening. And then you will see seven bowls poured out on the earth and you'll see some serious judgment happening, cataclysmic things happening. So you have three sets of seven judgments. So now I wanna tell you how these views look at these uh, judgments. So I'm gonna draw on this just a little bit. The preterist view says that this is, you see the cross there, so let's just call that 30 AD. And so right here we're gonna put 70 AD, that's when the Jerusalem fell. The preterist said all those things happened between about 60 and 70 AD. All right, so the next, all these seals and all that, all that bad stuff, they map it all onto events right before 70 AD. The historicist view says these are sequential events. In other words, seal one is opened and this bad thing happens and seal two is opened and that bad thing happens. Then trumpets start being blown that these are sequential catastrophic events, but they happen all the way through the church age. And what do I mean when I say the church age? All the way from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So far, 2,000 years. And so they're going to say, those things are happening one after another, have been happening the last 2,000 years, and some of them are yet to happen. So, that's the, so this is the preterist view. This is the historicist view. Futurist view, and what I put up here is a chart is a futurist view. I'll show you charts with every view, but this one's the most convenient. So futurists, most of them believe in a rapture. They believe in seven years of tribulation, and they believe that all of these things happen sequentially in this seven-year period, that you're gonna have the first seal and you're gonna go all the way to the seventh bowl. All of these things are gonna happen one after another chronologically in a seven year period. Symbolic view says these are not sequential 
events. That you're seeing a vision of seven seals, a vision of seven trumpets, and in fact, they may all be talking about the same thing. And so it's not chronologically related and it does not things, these things necessarily have to happen in order. Okay, so those are the views. That may be a little technical, but I wanted you to realize that the different views even think the sequence of these events are a little bit different and what time period they're happening in. So let's dive in. Chapter six, we're gonna do chapter six and seven. Now, so the lamb has taken the scroll with the seals and I watched the lamb, Christ, open one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse. This was a bright red horse and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should war against one another and he was given a great sword. So he's seeing this vision of these riders on the horses coming out. And let's finish this part. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, and these are the creatures around the throne, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades, this word's usually translated hell in your Bible. The, it's a Greek word and the Greek idea is when you died, you went to Hades. Okay, that's the place of the dead and Hades was following him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence, disease, and by wild beasts of the earth. So we've got four horsemen. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of Revelation. So he sees a vision of four riders on the horses, but what are they doing? What does this vision mean? So clearly, you see the first rider is war coming upon the earth. And the second one is uh, disease and famine. And the third is literally inflation. That whole thing of the price of barley and the price of wheat, the idea is, is oh, there's scarcity, there's famine happening. And then the fourth one is death. And so the, the different views have a different idea of what is this talking about? Well, first of all, regardless of the views, what's your gut reaction to this? Obviously, there's that God's judgment, it, there is going to be on the earth. Whenever this happens, you're gonna have wars, nations fighting against nations, and that's gonna lead to famine and disease, which it does, right? and they're gonna be, a fourth of the earth is gonna die. They're gonna be massive numbers of people killed and starved to death and disease. And so regardless of your point of view, what's the image that you see here? A terrifying image of war on the earth, nation warring against nation. Now I wanna go back and I wanna pick up a couple of things that uh, you, you know that now kind of come into play. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, this is a very hotly debated little chapter, but this is Jesus speaking to his disciples and he's looking at the future. And I want you to see what he says and what the book of Revelation is revealing sound a lot alike, don't they? So here's what Jesus said. He said, nation is gonna rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, meaning there's gonna be wars on the earth. There will be famines and earthquakes in many places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Let me translate that, the beginning of the end times, the beginning of God's judgment on the earth. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, talking to the Christians, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many 
Christians will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets, false teachers will arise and lead many people astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is Jesus predicting there will come a time when there will be massive wars and famine and disease in the earth. And when John sees these seals, he sees it happening. So the big question is, when is this war and famine and disease gonna happen? Well, let me just go through the list. If you're a preterist, you think all of these things happened right before the fall of Jerusalem. And to be fair, a brutal war of the Romans invading. I mean, the, in 66 AD, the Jews threw off Roman rule in Judea. They, they had an uprising, kind of like Simon the Zealot and his buddies wanted to rise up, and they did, and they actually killed a bunch of Roman soldiers. Well, about a year later, Rome arrives, massive army. Bunch of Jews did not want to rebel against Rome. They didn't think they could win, and they were right. And Rome said, man, I've had enough. And so they have a war, and it's not much of a war. Rome just conquers city after city. But in 68 AD, they besiege the city of Jerusalem. And when you read the accounts of that, I mean, like a million Jews are killed in this time period. And Romans are just killing a bunch of Jews. There is famine. There are just brutal stories of disease and death and all of this. So if you're a preterist, you look at what Jesus is saying and you look at the four horsemen and the wars and you go, man, that sounds like exactly what happened in 70 AD when the Jerusalem fell and it was destroyed and they destroyed the temple. And by the way, it's, that's what it looks like today. You can still see some of the stones that the Romans 2,000 years ago pushed off the Temple Mount. And so, Preterist says it happened then. Historicists say, no, this is actually talking about the persecution of Christians in the first 200 years, from say 100 to 300 AD, because historicists are gonna map all of history through this. So the first four seals happening early. Futurists say, no, seven year period in the future and it's gonna kick off with massive wars. In fact, futurists typically think that that first rider, the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist comes into the world, not riding on a horse, but I mean the Antichrist comes to political power, starts warring, uh, and conquering, and so you get war and famine and pestilence and death happening. And then the uh, symbolic says, you know what? Jesus and this are talking about something that's happened many times in history and may happen a special time at the end, but this has happened more than once in history. So you get this idea of war and pestilence and famine, and so the, the tribulation opens with war on earth and just cataclysmic events going on. Romans says this, and this is uh, Paul writing to the Romans. This is the gospel right here. And this is a prediction of what Revelation is now gonna talk about. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation, is you are seeing God's judgment on all of the unfaithful rebels of the earth happening. And that's part of what the gospel is, that you, know, you need to repent, believe the good news. That's what Jesus was saying. You need to be reconciled to God because God's judgment is gonna come on the earth. Well, the book of Revelation is the, the second part of that story. Like, okay, it's time for God's judgment to come on the earth. So, 1 Thessalonians says this, and this kind of supports the futurist view. While people are saying, it's also talking about the coming of Christ and the end of times. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. This, the reason I say this kind of fits the futurist idea a little bit is because have you noticed, I mean, you probably noticed that things are getting worse in the world, okay? That's kind of old man thing to say, but I think it's safe to say the earth is getting worse. The gospel predicts it. But what's interesting right now to me is the pace at which things 
are deteriorating. Way faster pace of change in the world today. And so that passage about you're gonna think things are going pretty well, but things can change really quickly. And so that's what the futurists think, is we're gonna be tootling along and one day, boom, certain number of people aren't here anymore because of the rapture and the next thing you know, all this stuff starts happening like crazy. That's actually a little more able to be envisioned today because of the pace of change. So futurists think that the rapture is gonna happen suddenly and all of these things are gonna start happening in a seven year period and it's gonna go crazy. So, here's Metzger. Metzger's more symbolic view. Here's how the symbolic view is of the four horsemen. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse are brilliant little pictures of God's judgments working themselves out in history. War and famine and pestilence and disease happen in the sphere of politics when men and women oppose the weird uh, will of God and in the military sphere and in the economic sphere. There are few chapters in Revelation that speak more directly to our time than this part of chapter six. So symbolic view isn't saying it's untrue, it's saying God's judging it, but it's saying this is what sin will get you. Sin always is gonna result in war and famine and pestilence and death. Is that, is that helping you kind of see the difference in these views? They all think they're true, they all think God is doing it. Futures just think it's gonna happen in the future and symbolic says, this is what sin always does and always has done throughout history. So that's really the fundamental difference in those points of view. Fifth seal, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar this is in the throne room, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So these are Christians who have preached the gospel and been killed for it. We call them martyrs. Martyr is a Greek word that means witness, somebody that testifies about what they've seen or what they've done. You witness all the time. We just don't use that word, it's a religious word. But you basically tell people, hey, I was like this, I met Jesus Christ, I'm like that. That's a testimony, that's your witness. Well, these are people that had spoken about Christ and been killed for it, and here are their souls. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They want justice. Then they were each given a white robe. What do clothes mean? Clothes are righteousness, character, or evil. They're given white robes, meaning you have persevered to the end, even to the end of being killed for your faith, and here's a white robe. You are reconciled to God, you are just, you are righteous in God's sight. So they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, Christians, and their brothers, Christians, should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Now this is really interesting. I wanna pause and talk about the wrath of God for just a second. So what is happening here? So on the one hand, you see the patience and the love of God because some people would ask, why does God continue to let evil people persecute and oppress people in the world? Why? I mean, when you've got the dictators and the oppressors in this world doing horrific things, why doesn't God end this right now and punish them for that? Interesting thought, because God wants everyone to be saved. And not everyone will not be saved, but that's God's desire. And you and I are living through turbulent times not because we're not, our future is secured. We know where we'll spend eternity. And those souls who were preaching the gospel, they were killed for it. But it, they will be in eternity with God. And so you ask yourself, yeah, but why did God let, them, let that happen to them? Because God cared so much for the people who had yet to hear that he let us endure this for the sake of others that might come, knowing that even if we in suffered and were killed in this little life, he's already seen that we have eternity with him. And so you could ask yourself, why does God let Christians go through difficult times? Because God so loves all the other people in the world that there are others who will come. And so God's, First Peter says this, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. But the time comes when God said, 
the time is here and judgment happens and justice is done. Now, the, the flip side of this coin, one is God's so patient and lets us go through hard times for the sake of others that will come to Christ and they'll be saved for eternity. And we in eternity will say our suffering is, this is what Paul said, is in Romans, I consider that our suffering is nothing compared to the glory of eternity. So you see God's love even in letting us suffer for the sake of other people that might come. Okay, now the flip side of that, as you read through this, you're gonna be tempted to have a lot of compassion and say, wow, this is awful. How can God do this to the people on the earth? And I want you to think about this. These people who have been killed, uh, all the people in the world who have been oppressed, all the brutal things that have happened, my question is, how can God not do this? In other words, you might find it hard to believe in a God that will send people to hell. I cannot believe in a God that won't send some people to hell. Do you see what I'm saying? Is what about the victims? God is a just God and he's a loving God. And so he waits and waits and we preach and preach and we suffer and we die because he loves everyone. But at some point, the souls of all those children who've been killed, all those adults who've been tortured, all those people who've been oppressed cry out and say, but are you a just God? And he said, yes, I am, and I will do justice on the earth. Does that make sense? People struggle with this a little bit, but this is a perfect time to say you should not struggle with this at all. If God is just, he must do what's right. And yet he also loves everyone and so he waits. And we too may suffer because he loves everyone so much he wants to give them a chance. But justice will be done. That's, that's one of the key ideas in Revelation and that's why Christians who are being killed and persecuted all through history have read this book to be reminded that you know what? I'm suffering, I'm being treated unjustly, but the day will come when my God, remember chapters four and five, who's the real power in this universe, will do justice on the earth. And so I don't need to take revenge because the day will come when my God will, will, will impose justice on the earth. Christians needed to hear that. They need to know that God will do what is right. And that's why Christians, under the most brutal persecution in history, have never taken up arms and said, we're gonna overthrow the Roman Empire. We're gonna overthrow the Korean government. We're gonna overthrow whatever. I'm just picking on you know, people, places where Christians have been killed and persecuted. Christians don't do that. You know why? Because of this, they believe this. My God will execute judgment on the earth. Okay, end of sermon, we'll move on. All right, so when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree shedding its winter fruit. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling out, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath of God has come and who can possibly stand? Okay, so if you're symbolic, if you, this is the end of the world. These six seals tell you this is what happens when Christ comes and the world is judged and the world ends here. You got, like, yeah, but Terry, we got a lot of revelation to go. Are we just gonna cut this thing short? Well, a symbolic view would say when we, and when you see this in our next lesson, the seven trumpets, really similar, telling the same story again in a little different way. And the seven bowls, telling the same story again in a little different way. So the symbolic view says, this is the story of the end of the world and God's gonna tell it three times. 
So let's talk about the numbers for a second. Why would this make any sense at all to read it this way? So the number seven is completeness, wholeness. So you've got seven judgments, seven seals. We've only gotten six, but you'll, you'll see. You've got seven seals. This is the complete set of God's judgment. You've got seven trumpets, the complete judgment of God. You've got seven bowls, the complete judgment of God. What does three mean? Three has two meanings. One is a divine meaning, but if you remember when I told you about Hebrew, and if you wanna talk about the most holy, you'd say holy, holy, holy. It's a way of emphasizing it. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Seven, seven, seven. So a symbolic view says, this is the same story being told three times to really make the point. This is the final, complete, full, justifiable judgment of God on the world. Okay, so that's a symbolic kind of a view. The futurist view is really interesting here. Now remember the futurists say, this is all literally happening in the future in a seven year period. But there are two flavors of futurists here. And you can pick whichever one you wanna be. Okay, you can be chocolate, you can be vanilla. Doesn't make any difference to me. But this is interesting because futurists are gonna say, one group is going to say this is literally what is happening. Meaning the, the moon really will turn red and the sun really will be black like an eclipse and the sky will go away. And so for example, they'll say the sky's gonna go away because of volcanic eruptions and the ash. And that's what's gonna make the moon red. And you're gonna have literally earthquakes over all the earth. And you're gonna have people running out of their towns and hiding in caves. In other words, this is literally what's gonna happen. It's gonna be worldwide natural cataclysm. Well, I shouldn't say natural because God is ordaining it. But I mean, they're real earthquakes and things like that. Does that make sense? So all of these things, you're gonna have real war, you're gonna have real famine, you're gonna have real pestilence, you're gonna have real earthquakes, you're gonna have real mountains literally splitting in two. They see this as very literally a cataclysm coming on the earth. This is why we use the word apocalypse. Remember I told you apocalypse just means a revealing. It's not good or bad. But because of this revelation, the word apocalypse to us means something really bad is going to happen because this is really bad. So one camp of futurists say, get ready, serious seismic activity coming at the beginning of the seven years. But another camp of futurists say, yes, it's actually slightly symbolic because you've got the war and the famine and the pestilence. What this is actually talking about is nuclear winter that what's gonna happen is the Antichrist is gonna bring war and famine and pestilence uh, and disease to the earth, and he's gonna trigger a big nuclear war. And a nuclear winter is going to blanket uh, the sky, and plants are gonna die. You're gonna see that in our next lesson. And the moon's gonna be red, and the, you just aren't gonna be able to see the sun. There's no sunlight. And so another group says, it's not literal earthquakes, it's man-made with a nuclear war. And so futurists see this a couple of different ways. That makes sense, interesting? A lot of people are futurists, so I spent a little more time on that to kind of let you know that there are a couple of flavors of what's happening, but they take this very literally. I mean, those things are literally gonna happen. Symbolic view, it's not that you don't think the moon's gonna be red, but what you really think is happening is kingdoms are falling and God is is judging the kingdoms and they're all being leveled in the world. After this, after the six seals, you're gonna see a little interlude. And this happens after the, in the trumpets and it also, the pattern is real similar. You're gonna have six trumpets and then a little interlude and then the seventh. And you're gonna have six bowls and then a little interlude something's happened. So we've had six seals. There's a little interlude that happens here and it's very controversial. So after that sixth seal and all this cataclysmic stuff is happening, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. This is his vision. This is what he's envisioning, right? 
Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. You're gonna see a couple of seals in the book of Revelation. This first seal, in those days, what a seal was, real similar to an actual seal today, used to be, this isn't the way uh, it happens now, but when you went to a notary, they would actually have a seal that would crimp the paper. Have you ever seen that? And it would literally crimp the paper and it was a, a raised seal. In other words, there's a stamp, if you will. Now they don't use those anymore, but that's the idea of a seal. Well, in those days, a seal was, you sealed anything important. You put a little wax, hot wax, and you take your ring, which had your little emblem on it, and you'd press it on there and there would be your little symbol and it would have sealed it closed, meaning that belongs to me. By the way, just as a side note, all kinds of interesting archeological finds in Israel, you'll find pottery and on the jar of pottery, a lot of times it'll say who it belongs to, right? And one of the, one of the prominent inscriptions and one of the ways you know you found a palace is it will have a little inscription called Lamelech, which in Hebrew means belonging to the king. And so that's a seal, it's a stamp of ownership. So in here you see the first of two seals. And the first one is the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given the power to do all this stuff on the earth and he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So two important points here. Uh, real important, not so important. Real important, in the midst of the greatest calamity you can imagine happening on the earth. I mean, think about this, there's wars, maybe there's nuclear weapons going off, there's just no sun, there's cataclysmic stuff. If COVID rocked our world, this is really gonna rock the world, okay? And so you've got this horrible situation, and in the middle of that, God says, just a second, I want you to mark every one of my people. And the beauty of this is, and I just want you to think about this for a minute, that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in your life, you have been marked with the seal of God. He cares enough about you that in the midst of everything going, he says, stop. I know every one of my people. I know where you are. I know what you're going through and you belong to me and the name of the living God is on your forehead. Is that literal? I don't think so, some people do, but the point of it is, is that God knows where you are, no matter how dark a place you ever go, no matter how deep a hole you ever get yourself into, the living God is willing to stop everything in the universe to seal his people. That is just powerful to me, and I want you to remember that. The question that's of less importance to me but has killed many, many millions of trees as people write books trying to argue about this is who in the world are these 144,000 people? And it goes on, I, haven't, I did not put this on the slide, but what it's gonna go on, it's gonna say 12,000 from the tribe of Judah and 12,000 from the tribe, etc. And you get 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, man, that's just awfully symbolic. So if you are a symbolic person, you would say, you know what that is? That's a thousand, and a thousand always means the full amount of time or the full amount of people. It might be 25 billion, but a thousand is symbolic of everything. And then you get 12 squared. God's always divided his people into 12s. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles. That number just means all of Israel or all of the Christians. And so a thousand times 12 squared from a symbolic point of view is this is God saying all through history, all through time, through every calamity, through any persecution, I know my people and they have my seal on them. In fact, let me skip ahead because I, I, I want you to see what Ephesians says about this. Now, this is Paul writing to Christians uh, 
probably 40 years earlier. He says, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, and when you placed your trust in Christ, which is what that's effectively saying, more accurately saying, when you believed in him, but when you decided to follow Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, God put a piece of the Holy Spirit in you as a guarantee of your eternal life with him, your inheritance. So Christians are sealed. What does it mean to be sealed? You have my spirit in you. You belong to me. You do not belong to Satan. You used to belong to Satan when you followed the ways of this world, that's Ephesians 2, but now you have been made alive in Jesus Christ and you have the seal of the living God, the Holy Spirit inside you. And so symbolic view says, wow, that is a powerful message to all Christians of all times who've ever undergone trials or hardships or bankruptcies or divorces or cancer or anything that your God, you belong to God and you are secure in eternity. A futurist view, and now this gets where it gets really interesting. All right, so if you're a futurist and we're in the seven years in the future, right? So all this, this earthquake stuff, whether it's real earthquakes or it's nuclear war, either way, bad stuff starting to happen. The church isn't there. Remember, they got raptured in chapter four. They're gone in chapter six. So all the Christians, all the Christ followers, they're gone. So who are these people? They also belong to God. Not all futurists think this, so I'm gonna paint with a broad brush, but this is the most popular point of view right now. These are Jewish people, literally 12,000 from every tribe of the Jews. So these are Jewish people in the world who become Christians. In other words, you get the seal of God, meaning you belong to me because you have placed your trust in Christ, and they are going to go be evangelists during the tribulation. Yeah, a lot of you are nodding like, oh, yep, that's exactly right. Yes, that is the predominant futurist view of who the 144,000 are. Make sense? I just wanted you to be aware of other points of view about this, but that is the futurist view. Church is gone in the rapture, 144,000 Jews believe in Christ. I, I wanna make sure you understand, this is not like Jews go to heaven and there's another way to get to heaven except Christ. No, they accept Christ and God says, all right, you got seven years, go evangelize during the tribulation, okay? Question. Yes, um, so we have a couple of different opinions about who's being sealed, whether they're original believers or Johnny-come-lately believers. Right. And um, Those were not my words, I'm just and kidding. And we also have people's names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, coming yes. later. Yes, later. Um, so the question is, given that, how can Christians fall away? And that goes back to the beginning of the lesson where it says, if you persist. Yes, okay, so I'm gonna give you a short answer, but I gave a longer answer to this in one of the Friday podcasts because we touched on it. And honestly, to do justice to this, you just need to build a little more context than I have time for. But I'm gonna give you the short, short version of this. There are two, okay, I'm really painting with a broad brush, two major points of view about Christians, the Calvinists and the Arminians. And they agree with each other 99% of the time. But Calvinists fundamentally say, God has ordained who will be saved. That God's grace is irresistible, and he, he has that right. You may not like Calvinism, it doesn't make any difference to me because it's all gonna come out in the wash. But bottom line is God certainly has that right. But their point of view is, Jesus says all who persevere will be saved. Calvinists will say anybody that he picks is going to persevere, okay, it's just a done deal. So it's kind of a high command and control kind of version of God. Arminians are gonna say, no, you actually, now Arminians don't think you choose Christ. Christ chose you but you can respond to, to Christ's offer, okay? So I don't want you to think anybody believes in what's called libertarian free will, like you wake up one day and say, I think I'll become a Christian. No, no, no. 
We don't have the power to become Christians. Only God has the grace to allow that to happen. But they would then say that like the parable of the sower, you might receive the word and spring up, but then trouble comes. Remember the parable of the sower and your roots aren't very deep and you die, your faith dies. And so that you do need to consciously persevere. So they both agree that only those who persevere to the end will be saved. But Calvinists say, God picks you, you're gonna persevere. Arminians say, well, since you responded, you could also turn away. So Calvinists would say, you can't quote, I hate this phrase, lose your salvation. In other words, God will make sure you persevere. Arminians are like, well, if you responded to God, you can reject God. Prodigal son story, ring a bell with anybody, you know, you can turn around and leave. Okay. Christians disagree a little bit, but nobody disagrees with what Jesus said. We are called to persevere and follow Christ through good times, through bad times. And so it just depends on the mechanism that you think that happens with. That's, that's my best short answer for that. Okay, will there be only Jews who are given the option for salvation after the rapture and during the tribulation? Good question. Here's what the futurists would say. No, the gospel is still available to everyone, but this particular vision is talking about 144,000 Jews become believers and then become evangelists. So good question. This vision is about Jews, but during the tribulation, there, there can be and will be other people that come to Christ. Good question. Are all futurists pre-trib or can a futurist, can you be futurist and still be post-trib? Yes, good question. So uh, I'm giving, I'm, what I'm portraying in this, cause you kind of got to narrow it down or it's gonna get so detailed, you'll, you'll nod off. So <laughs> basically, the most popular futures view is tribulation at the beginning of the, or, or rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, chapter four, seven years of tribulation, Christ comes again. That was that little chart I showed you. And then on we go, we'll get to that later. There are futurists, however, who say, no, actually the seven year tribulation starts, but it's not until the middle that the believers are raptured, mid tribulation. And there are some that say, well, actually, we're supposed to be evangelizing during the tribulation, even though times are hard. We're here to spread the word and we'll be taken off the earth after the tribulation. So there are three different views of futures, but the most popular one is the one I'm usually talking about. But that's a great question. There are different points of view. So there are nuances in all of these views, but just for the ease of understanding, I'll, I'll try to give you the most popular view. How do preterists deal with the second coming of Christ? How do preterists deal with the second coming of Christ? Okay, again, I'll paint with a broad brush because there are different flavors of preterists too, but fundamentally, they believe in the second coming of Christ. I mean, all these views I'm telling you are orthodox Christian views. They believe what the scripture says that Christ will come again. They just think that this book is about the fall of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? In other words, they do think Christ is coming again. They just don't think this is the story of Christ coming again. They think this is the story of that. Some of them would say, this is really about Jerusalem falling. And you know what? It's gonna be played out again in the in future on a bigger scale. That's an interesting idea because God does that all the time. That a lot of Old Testament prophecies, if you've been in any of our classes, we've talked about this some. A lot of Old Testament prophecies and this is the beauty. This is why you know God is cooler than your average God. Because it's one thing to predict the future, right? Which people can't do anyway. Here's what God does. He says, this is what's gonna happen, and it does. And then it happens on a bigger scale later. It's like, it only comes true once, it comes true again. The symbolic view is fundamentally saying that. It says all these prophecies, all these things is telling you, they, God is so smart, they don't just come true once, they've come true many times. It's actually a really high view of God. So, good question. Preterists may say this is mainly about Jerusalem and it might also be a prophecy that comes true later, but it's fundamentally about that. So that's, it's an emphasis thing. So they, they agree with the second coming of Christ, they just aren't sure this is specifically about it. So great question, that's a good clarifying question. 
Okay, so the 144,000, Jews who become Christians or these are God's people. But to me, the powerful lesson here is that whichever you think about it, is that your God is never too busy to pay attention to you. He's never so busy destroying the world that he can't come see a, well, that didn't come out right, did it? But my point is, God loves you and knows you and you belong to God. You are marked with a seal. That's just one of the most powerful lessons ever. So we talked about this, the idea of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then after this, after the sealing of the 144,000, I looked and behold, a great multitude. I believe he shifted his view now back to heaven. He's looking back in the throne room. So he's seeing what's happening in the throne room and he sees when the seals open, he sees, oh my goodness, look what's happening on the earth. So he's seeing a vision, right? And so now I think his view is back in heaven. After this, I looked and a great multitude that no one could number, countless, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Four adjectives. Where are these people from? Earth. These are people. These are souls, if you will. From all tribes, countless numbers, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So what kind of people are these? These are people that have been faithful to God through their lives, and now they've been given the white robe uh, from God. And palm branches in their hands, palm branches, if you remember from Palm Sunday, they waved those to Jesus, blessed be the king, the son of David. So they've got palm branches because this is our king. This is Christ our king. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might, seven adjectives, all glory be given uh, to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders looked at me and said, who are these people clothed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, only you know. He said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? That means that they have redeemed their lives by being washed in the blood of the lamb. They've been forgiven, they've been made righteous. Think about baptism. Romans six says, when you were baptized, you, your old self died and you were raised to walk in newness of life. You sort of took off your old dirty life and you were raised to have a white robe. And why is it white? Because I'm a better person? No, because Jesus' blood washed it white. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what this is talking about. So these are uh, believers. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They for, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, and now listen to this. These are people that have come through the tribulation, through the trials, and uh, for their faith, suffered for their faith. And this is one of the beautiful promises. He will shelter them with his presence. They will not hunger anymore. They won't thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. You remember Jesus talking about, I have many sheep. I am the good shepherd. This is the end of that story. When Jesus is saying that to people on the earth, this is what Jesus sees, is you can't see this but I am the good shepherd and all of my sheep will be sheltered in my presence. Revelation is the end of the story of a lot of the gospel and what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus had in mind. He said, and the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. Anybody thinking Psalm 23? Oh my goodness, this is the imagery of this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow, I mean, so think about what's happened. 
We open with a worship scene. We start opening the seals and all hell breaks loose on the earth, right? And all the judgment of God begins to come. And then you go fast forward to the earth and you say, what happened to all of God's people? Here they are, not a tear in their eye, no more suffering, sheltered in the presence of the Almighty. Can you understand why God might have revealed this to John in 95 AD? It is the grace of God to tell them, you guys don't know it, but you're gonna go through 200 years of horrible persecution. And in fact, you don't realize it, but Christians for the next 2,000 years are going to go through great persecution. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a glimpse of how this story ends. We should be reading this book a lot because it's even in our little lives, as we go through trouble and heartbreak and, and difficulties, read this and it's God saying, I know this is gonna be hard and I want to reassure you, this is where, this is your destiny. This is how this story ends. Do you see how gracious God is to, to show this? And so that's, that is what the book of Revelation is really about. So the lesson I'd like to leave you with is this. If you think of nothing else about this, I mean, we can argue about the 144,000 and we can talk about all this kind of stuff and we will, and that's great. But don't ever forget this, no matter which view you have of this, you belong to the almighty God of the universe who lives forever and ever. And no matter who thinks they're powerful on this earth, this picture is your destiny. And so go live fearlessly in the world. Go live boldly in the world because you have already conquered. Remember what Jesus said? You will have trouble in this world, but take heart. I have already overcome the world. That's what he was looking at, and that's true. And so go live boldly this week. And next week, actually things get worse with the trumpets. So I'll see you then. Thanks, guys.